Well, welcome to another Brew Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and on today's episode, we will be talking about theodicy and trauma. Why do bad things happen to good people? How can an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God allow such atrocities such as cancer, famine, rape, and genocide to continually occur throughout the course of history? Theodicy is a word broken up into two words that means God and trial. God is on trial. God, where are you? God, what's going on? These types of questions of pain, trauma, suffering, and evil move a lot of people away from any kind of faith, any kind of religion, and any type of deity. So my friends across the religious and non-religious spectrum will be diving into this hot and always relevant topic tonight. We'll be talking around these different types of theodicy that I'm going to cover right now to give you a framework before we begin the episode. The first type of theodicy is an Augustinian theodicy. The source here is Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine. The social context is around the 5th century. This was the pre-schism era before Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodoxy uh, became their different tribes. So the question of why is there suffering Well, human beings inherit sinfulness and disobedience. This is the doctrine of original sin, the classical view there. And as a result, they experience pain and suffering. So what role does God play? In this view, God remains blameless, and it's all our fault, all humanity's fault. The next type of theodicy is from St. Irenaeus, a second century bishop and early church father. This is the character-building theodicy. This comes even before Augustine. So evil and suffering exist so that human beings can develop as, you know, these moral agents. So without the possibility of evil, according to this view, there can be no good. So then what role does God play? Well, God stands in contrast, direct contrast to evil and suffering, but God is not the active cause of it. The next type of theodicy is a reincarnate theodicy from the Hindu and Buddhist traditions. This social context is South Asia in the caste system. So why is there suffering? Well, people experience suffering because of wrongdoings in these kind of previous lives. This is the reincarnation occurring here. And um, God, there's no role that God plays according to this type of theodicy. The other type of theodicy is the protest theodicy. This is the anti-theodicy. This is from Jewish theologians after the Holocaust, early uh, 20th century. This is the question of God, God, where are you in the midst of this horrible war and the suffering of our people? You know, why is why is there suffering according to this? This is this is simply a protest of God. This is really a, you know, God, how could you allow these things to happen? There's no explanation. Uh, There's no, here's why, here's God's will. This is simply a rant and a rage against the machine of all things God. So then what role does God play? Well, God, in this role, God becomes the target of the protest. And God must account for the lack of justice, according to this theodicy. Two more theodicies. One more is the theodicy of warning. This is a late 19th, early century theodicy. Finite suffering in this life serves as a warning towards eternal suffering if we humans don't change our ways. So this is the idea that in this this role, God is this judge, God's this lawyer offering this glimpse of what's going to happen, right? As a result of humanity's actions, be warned. You think it's bad now, it's going to get worse later. The last theodicy is process theodicy. This is an open and relational theology right here. This comes from Whitehead, and this is a mid-20th century Protestant post-World War II kind of a a social construct that came out. And a lot of the friends on today's show happen to be uh, more leaning in the process philosophy realm. So then why is there suffering? According to this, suffering exists because of humans, our ability to choose. This is very human agency type of a, of a, of a theology, of a paradigm here. So then the, the role of God is that God's nature is not, it's not coercive. God does not coerce. God is non-interventionist, okay? So God cannot 
I'm going to repeat that. God cannot prevent suffering according to this theodicy. It's going to be a big one. It's going to be awesome. If you have any kind of questions or comments, please do so and write us a review. Write us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Pocket Casts, and our host, Podbean. You can always follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Brew Theology, and Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. Last week, I talked about different levels of Brew Theology partnerships. Here at Brew Theology, we want to create this alliance of healthy, meaningful, and eclectic dialogue all across the nation. And so if you want to be a partner, go to the website at brewtheology.org to learn a little bit more about that. And I want to just mention one thing. If you're just an individual, well, guess what? You're more than just an individual. You can actually help us. You can be a donor. If you really believe in what we're doing right here, if you want to keep this Brew Theology Ministry organization running and going, then there are different levels. So just like there's different ingredients to beer, we've decided to, to make this fun. You have the water, you have grain, you have hops, you have yeast, and then, of course, for fun, there's always the barrel-aged if you want to barrel your beer. So uh, if you want to be a just an individual donor, $10 a month, you get a sticker and a pint glass. That's just $10 a month. If you want to be a grain level, you got to put the grains in. That's $25 a month. That gets you a sticker, a pint glass, and a t-shirt. If you want to move up to the hops level, got to throw those hops in. Every beer needs hops. That's only $35 a month. You get a sticker, a pint glass, and a hoodie. Next is yeast. This is the yeast level. Without yeast, well, you would really you wouldn't have beer. It wouldn't be good. So this is $50 a month, and you get a sticker, pint glass, hoodie, and a cooler, plus two beers on us mm-hmm, in person right here in the Mile High City. I'll buy your beer, take you to Platte Park Brewing Company, or maybe we'll go somewhere else, River North, I don't know, wherever you want to go. The next individual donor level is barrel-aged, and this is $100 a month, which in the course of the year, you know, it's not that much. So $100 a month, what does that get you? It gets you a sticker, a pint glass, a hoodie, a brew theology cooler, a hat, and two beers on us in person. Plus, I'll like everything you put online, so there's that. Cheers, share the brew, peace. Okay, we ready to rock and roll again? Let's do it. Come on, guys. All right, we're going to be talking some theodicy tonight. Do a little introduction around the table. Why don't you start? All right, I'm Andy. Um, I grew up in an interfaith household, so my dad's family is all Jewish. My mom's family is all Christian. When I was young, I chose Christianity just because that's where my community was. Um, since then, I have gotten to seminary instead of theology. Now I work for the United Methodist Church. Um, I still have a lot of problems with the church. And I, for this conversation, it'll be helpful to know that I'm a process theology guy. And so we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. I'm Vlad, um, former atheist, I guess, uh, now rediscovered in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and I'm more of a character-building fella when it comes to theodicy. I'm Kyle Ramsey Sumner. Um, I grew up evangelical, ran away from the church uh, because of theodicy, and slowly came back through liberationist thought, um, and, and currently I love School of Theology. Um, I'm constantly toying around and dealing with issues of theodicy myself. So I also identify mostly as a process slash open relational person. So um, this topic's pretty relevant to my interests. Okay. My name is Amanda Gilbert. I grew up in a non-denominational Christian family. Um, I am now atheist, and I would classify myself as uh, kind of in the anti-theodicy camp um if there is a god or in a higher being i think he's kind of a jerk so yeah that's where i'm at amanda's so polite i'm just so nice <laughs> especially after a glass of wine <laughs> and i'm ryan grew up southern baptist evangelical god always had a plan <laughs> so 18 years ago i stopped being a southern baptist evangelical now i'm more of a an evolving Anabaptist, Methodocostal, and you can ask me later what that means. That's a mouthful. But with with the theodicy dilemma, I am very open and relational. Also have um, some leanings toward 
some of the, um, the Holocaust uh, protest, but we'll get to that in a bit. So I already did the introduction um, before this, so we're going to read this content on Theodicy, and then we'll dive into the questions. So why do bad things happen to good people? <clears throat> How could an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good God allow things like genocide, rape, and famine? How could we call a God who allows children to die of starvation or entire communities to be wiped off the face of the planet merciful or just? For as long as people have been engaging in theological conversations, theodicy has always been a heated topic of discussion. Theodicy at its roots can be broken down into the Greek words theos and dike. So theodicy is most simply defined as the judgment of God. Since the term was coined in the early 18th century, theologians and philosophers have used the field of theodicy to grapple with the existence of God alongside so much pain and suffering. And as time has gone on, different schools of thought have emerged. The theodicies that Ryan talked about before are by no means the only explanations for evil and suffering in the world, but they're some of the most commonly used responses, and they all have their own strengths and weaknesses. While discussing theodicies and the existence of suffering on the theoretical level can be intellectually stimulating, applying these different schools of thought to people's lived experiences can become messy and potentially destructive. Telling a grieving mother that her child died because of inherited sinfulness, or telling a refugee fleeing war that his family was killed as a warning to repent, can, and often does, lead to further psychological and spiritual harm. In these situations, theodicy quickly can turn into a tool of spiritual abuse. So what are people of faith to do in light of the suffering and pain that surrounds us? Are we to offer up the best guess as why it exists? Are we to ignore it altogether? Or are we simply called to wrestle with a topic and sit in the unknowing? So what kind of questions of you know, suffering come up, what kind of responses come up in your community? of faith or non-faith growing up and today, uh, what kind of explanations do you hear when bad things happen? So I have an anecdote for this one, actually. Um, I went to school at the University of Georgia, and so a lot of my friends are uh, religious, typically Christian, and there was a pretty bad car crash that happened this past year, and um, four girls uh, around the ages of 21 were killed in this car crash, and the driver of the car um, survived, but she has horrible complications from it. And I would say it was sort of like a uh, kind of a character-building theodicy response where everyone was like, um, you know, oh, well, God has a plan. God is going to make something great of this. And, you know, everyone that was affected is going to have good things happen from this. And I, I sort of calmed myself down because these are people that were also suffering, right, that had lost something and were trying to come to grips with it. So I didn't think it was in any place my place to say anything about it, but I was disappointed that that was the response to such a horrible injustice um, that had happened to these very, very young girls. Can I put you on the spot and ask how you would respond in that situation if you were asked to give kind of a, this is what I think about that, or... I mean, if it was my friend, I would simply be saying, I miss you. You know, I loved you so much. You were such an important part of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously religion would not come into it mm-hmm. for me. Um, I know growing up in the church that that was always sort of the response was mm-hmm. God has a plan. Mm-hmm. It, it's happening for a reason. He has a plan for you. And I didn't necessarily understand that, right? Because what... What if there is not a plan? What if there is no reason for these girls dying, mm-hmm. right? What if it just happened and it, it stinks? And some of the other things that were kind of talked about in the introduction, right, of these terrible injustices that happen, why is the response, God is good? You know, he's, he's always good. God is good all the time, right? But hypothetically, let's say you don't believe in God exists, but let's say he does, right? Yeah. And what if you found out that he goes around and kind of changes reality to always, so that you always get the best outcome possible. Well, I mean, wouldn't you be feel, wouldn't you feel a little bit robbed of the kind of personal human experience that you can, could have? Oh gosh, I think that's a really, really <clears throat> difficult question. I think if we lived in that reality and we didn't know what suffering was, we would not be missing suffering. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or suffering would become 
something different, the uh, scale would just become different in and of itself. Um, but looking at this from like a perspective of there is a God, like let's, I'll go ahead and play along and say that mm-hmm. like there is a God and then the question becomes, does he have a hand in the suffering or does he not? Is there a reason behind his um, kind of giving out of suffering to people within a culture, right? Be, I, I, I mean, I don't, think, I don't think God has anything to do with handing out suffering or anything. I mean, I think a lot of these things are, are we suffer because we're flawed human beings and we make stupid decisions. And sometimes it's just bad luck. Sometimes, you know, forces of nature. But I don't think that, I think that if God actively intervened in our lives consistently, um, I don't know. I don't think we'd have a full experience. Yeah, so my experience growing up was very cliche. Some of the stuff that you heard, I mean, you grew up in Georgia, or you were in Georgia for a while. Yeah, Georgia for a while. Okay, so similar experience there where God has a plan, we'll never know, so-and-so is in a better place. I mean, all of these things that, and, and I really feel like all those responses were out of a really, like, sincere heart. And they were good, and I, so I don't want to. I don't want to dismiss the people that even still do that. I would encourage those who do that, if anyone is listening, to maybe don't have a response because sometimes that can be harmful. For instance, I had two friends in the last two years. One recently, one two years ago, whose young um, spouse with kids died of cancer. And I think I mean this. Okay, so you say that to that person, that could be offensive. That could be very. Uh, traumatic to, to to their theology it would wreck their faith even it would wreck my faith and i would say even a couple years ago as this one friend of mine was dying of cancer i had already been wrestling with my theodicy and open relational theology and you know does god change does god change in context with like you know the, the sort of ground up tangible earth earthy experience is god moved or is god un this unmovable you know being and I, I had to believe that, uh, and this was also part of that, that Holocaust, um, I went to the Holocaust Museum years ago, and I'm like, man, God has to be moved. If, if God feels anything, if God doesn't feel, I don't want to have any part of that God. So the experience that I had growing up and, and those responses that people still give to friends who've, who've had loved ones die of cancer, I think, I think we have to be careful. Uh, you mentioned intent, and I'm wondering if somebody having good intent is enough um, in that I, I still think even if somebody means well that they're... You know, this right I talk about spiritual abuse. Um, I've seen people who are suffering have been given responses that have caused psychological trauma and damage that's still a decade later still happening. And so I wonder, even if somebody means well, is it just or is it right for us to say, okay, they mean well and say what they want? Or should somebody say, hey, maybe this well, is being destructive? Actually, I think a really good thing that someone can say, coming from a place of good meaning, good intention, mm-hmm. is, I'll pray for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my mother says that to me mm-hmm. um, if something's going on in my life. Uh, and she's coming from a place of good intention. It's not offensive. It's very, it's very, very much good natured, mm-hmm. right? But if you're in a position where you're suffering immensely mm-hmm. because of the person who you've lost, it's very difficult to hear someone say to you, "Well, they're in a better place. Mm-hmm. Right. It's in God's plan." Because they may be in a better place, right? But perhaps they're mm-hmm. in heaven. Potentially, they are in a better place. Mm-hmm. But you aren't, mm-hmm. right? There's suffering here happening on earth because of that loss, mm-hmm. right? But and now we're well, now we're arguing a completely different point. What what is it moral to say to the victim? Not necessarily what is what is going on from a theological perspective, right? Like it yeah. could be very well that it, it is you know some very brutal. What is what is the most brutal one on here? Yeah, it's there's a correlation. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a correlation. It's not it's not the same, but it's definitely connected. Yeah, no, I agree with yeah. you. I mean, like you never go up in there like, yep, just an asshole, just decided to like. Kill them off. Like, you can't do that, obviously. So have, have you all had people say things like they have their theodicy, they have their sort of package deal, you've had traumatic experiences in your life, like you, like you were saying, and I, and I have as well. So how about, how about the rest of you? Have you experienced trauma or had a friend who has very close to you and what has been said from just a human level? Not about God, but more about the situation and to you. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can definitely speak to that. Um, when I was in middle school, and this is something I don't tell a lot of people, so this is a vulnerable moment for me, speaking into a microphone, talking about this. Um, but when I was in middle school, I didn't have a whole lot of friends. Um, 
I was friends with all the kids that got beat up, and I was only friends with them because I cared about them. And I and I in most of the time during the day, I tried to stay away from them because I wanted to be looked at as the, one of the cool kids. And so those are the only people I hung out with, but I chose not to hang out with them during the day so that people saw me as someone that was cooler than they were. Um, and my only real true friend during middle school was my great-grandmother. Every day I got dropped off on the bus to my great-grandmother's house and would eat ice cream with her, watch soap operas with her, and talk about her false teeth and all these old, incredible stories that she used to tell me. Um, and one day she broke her hip and she was in the hospital for a really long time and then she just wasn't there anymore. Um, and I was trying to wrap my head around death and this idea that I would never be able to hang out with my great-grandmother again and that I was left with these people who I cared about but didn't really want to be friends with um, in school. Um, and I constantly had people in my family telling me, like, well, this, this is a part of God's plan. It was, it was time for her to die. God has a plan in all this. It was for the best. And all I could think about was, well, crap, I don't have a friend anymore. Like, who am I going to talk to about my day-to-day life? Who am I going to, you know, share stories with? Um, and it really, I mean, it really caused me to be like, well, why would God choose to make me miserable? You know, and, and it, and it, I was super young. I was in middle school and it caused me to ask questions like, well, who is God and what, what is God like? And why does he care about some people and not other people? And why does he cause some people to die? Tremendous, like awful deaths. Um, and then other people to live super luxurious lives. Um, and I, and I mean, that really pushed me away from my faith. And so I think my experience with the idea and the concept of theodicy started at a really young age um, and came out of a, a Calvinistic, very deterministic understanding of the world. Like, this is how God planned things to be, and, we, and God has a bigger plan in the future for this. Anybody else? Yeah, so I, similar to both of what you just said, um, I was a freshman at Virginia Tech in 2007 when the shooting happened there, and the response there, it's the Bible Belt, it's southern or southwest Virginia, but the response was, you know, God's ways are man's ways, don't ask questions, or it's all part of the plan, um, and I saw how destructive that is, and that actually launched me on kind of looking into theodicy, that's what got me into process thought, was the theodicy question, was because I, I couldn't reconcile a all-powerful, all-good, all-loving God who also allows people to get gunned down in a classroom, um, now, the flip side of that was about three years ago, I was at a funeral for a seven-year-old, um, and the parents were talking about how God needed another angel, and things that I would say are very against the theology that I understand, and against my theological framework, and yet in that space, I kind of had to be quiet and say, okay, this is what you need right now, and support those people in it. So it's, even if I have a, this is what I'm committed to as an understanding of this, in the moment, you're right, you're not going to say to that person, hey, you know this is the reason why process thought makes sense and this is why a non-powerful God does X, Y, and Z. Instead, it was, I'm going to be here with you and present and listen to that, even though I deeply disagreed with theology. Hmm. These things just sound like coping mechanisms to me, right? I mean, like, there's a reason why, like, they're not, like, I wouldn't say that, they're not on the level of philosophy. They're like, God needed another angel. Like, that's their way of coping with, like, what has happened, right? So I don't think it's meant to be challenged on an intellectual level. But do you, don't you think at some point in this person's life, whether they're the person who lost their spouse or their kid or their best friend, that they're going to question in, on a philosophical, because we are intelligent beings. Now, I'm not saying like scholarly, like, no, we're all scholars. No, like, but we all have intelligence. <coughs> we all think about these things deeply. No, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're doing, is we're having this... That's what we do, that's what we do here, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the, that's why we're having this debate. Like, the thing is, like, I, like, the, like, there's two parts of this argument. There's how do you handle those people that are grieving and what's going on, Yeah. which is, yeah, you don't bring any of this stuff up. You shut up, and whatever they tell you, you just nod your head, and you're like, yeah, okay, makes sense. Like, you know, grieve through the process. and But then, on an intellectual level... Like, where do you guys stand as far as this yeah. goes? Right. Yeah, because even so, my buddy and I, we would talk on the phone for hours back when his his wife was dying of cancer. And we would have somewhat intelligent conversations, but mostly it was emotional. And he would unpack these people who would say, well, you're not praying hard enough. And, like, 
that's the kind of stuff I go, no, th- that's, that's theology there. And I think personally, I'm going to say it, that's just shitty theology. Amen. It is. You're not praying hard enough. One, this friend of mine is probably the, the most godliest man I know, and his wife's even godlier than you know than he is or was. Which are, I mean, how do you, how can you say that to somebody? So that to me, I go, you're going to unpack this, and I, and I, I don't know you know where he is today, but I know where where I am today. So let, yeah, let's let's cool. unpack where we are. Oh, we, oh, I'm getting emotional. Okay, <laughs> so I'm getting emotional. Just because you brought that up, I just yeah. think a funny little in- anecdote is like we all here know that I don't believe in God. I don't pray to God. Sometimes when I'm sitting on a plane and there's turbulence, oh. I find myself like my instinct because of how I grew up is to pray as if that is going to have some Fox sort of atheist. some sort of bearing over how my life goes forward. Right. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. totally just it's a conditioned response, mm-hmm. but it is one that really happens. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, I think, ties into this theodicy kind of question. And then the did you pray hard enough kind of question. Right. Because growing up, I was kind of taught like. If you pray a lot and you go to church and you tithe, then God will be bountiful and he will give back to you, right? The prayer of a righteous person. Yeah. I mean, right. You want to send some rain down? Come on, you just got to pray harder. You got to be righteous. Right. And then, and then yet you have some of the most righteous people in every sense of the word righteous mm-hmm. and the shit hits the fan in their world. Whereas in, in Wicca, which is totally different i'm not going to go on a tangent but in wicca (laughs) (laughs) in wicca it teaches you that the reason that people find success from prayer is that there are different energies um that you give out as a human and that that exist within this universe that we don't quite understand and so if you're praying you're giving out positive energy and so positive things will manifest from that energy um it's kind of a different tangent but i I think we should bring up prayer and let's do prayer before well, this is going to all tie in. It's all, all going to be connected. <laughs> Let's talk about prayer and our sort of that theodicy, the position, the category that we would assign ourselves to. So, uh, Andy and Kyle, you both have talked about process. We'll start there, and then we'll go to Irenaeus, and then we'll talk about the anti. So, what, are, what is process theology? <laughs> oh, wait. Can you talk about process theology in five minutes? <laughs> And how that applies to theodicy? So, Kyle is pointing at me again. Um, <laughs> come on, Kyle. <laughs> Do you want me to go or you want to go? No, I, I'll piggyback off what okay. you're saying. I'm, um, I'm going to focus specifically on theodicy in this conversation just because that's what's going to be most relevant with process thought. Um, and process thought or process theology, it's this idea that instead of, you know, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-present God, it's a God who is a weak God, a God who is non-coercive. Um, and so in that sense, instead of saying that this happened because God allowed it to happen or willed it to happen, it's saying that God does not have the power to come in and intercede and say, I'm going to stop this, and instead is in solidarity and in the midst of that and luring us towards um, you know, reconciliation and justice and goodness and beauty and all those things. And so a process theodicy, instead of trying to say this is why it happens, um, it's saying that regardless of how this is happening, what terrible things are going on, God is present, God is um, relational and in the midst of that with you. I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that, Kyle. No, I think that's I think that's really great. I mean, for me, like the the most basic um, idea behind process thought is the um, moving away from um, Greek philosophical precepts that we bring to Christianity. Um, and as we all know, Christianity, for the majority of its existence, has been influenced by Greek philosophical ideas. Um, the idea of um, an all-powerful, all-knowing, um, all-loving God. Um, and questioning the foundations, the, the metaphysical um, understandings of reality that, that those um, ideas kind of bring to the table. Um, and so for me, um, whenever we're talking about the idea and notion of God, um, it kind of starts there from, from that metaphysical um, mm-hmm. like idea about who and what God is. Yeah, so many of us, if not all of us, were raised with this omni-God. I mean... God's omnipresent, which that's the one I'm actually okay with. Omnipresent, I'm cool with that. But then there's the omniscient, all-knowing. So God knew that this was going to happen to your friend and my friend and this traumatic experience. This, um, um, you know, sort of omnipotent, all-powerful, El Shaddai from this Latin, right? I mean, which is crazy how that was. We'll, we'll get to that Can later. We that? Can we, you want to do that? So uh, should we break that one down? Because I think that was, you. I'm okay with that. So, well, let, let's do this first. Okay. Because I think that we have a, a Russian Eastern Orthodox person in here who <laughs> probably has some things to say. So then you have this omnipotent, all-powerful God, which is a translation, maybe uh, abuse, that Andy wants to talk about. 
<laughs> and now we've inherited that with thousands of years. Um, but before we get to that next question, Andy, can you un- unpack omnipotence according to your perspective and your translation? Yeah, so the word El Shaddai um, has been translated to omnipotent or all-powerful. Um, I would argue that that's a horrible translation. Um, it means of the mountains or of the hills. Um, some people even mean it means of the breast. It is literally a life-giving um, metaphor linguistically in ancient Hebrew. And so we kind of took that and said, well, this word means God is all-powerful. And the reality is this is a, a magnificent God, a God who is life-giving, but not a God who is, you know, the tip-top of all things and has power and dominion over all things. Yeah, this God of refuge. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, thinking like even having a child on the way, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the mother who nurses the young. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's beautiful. It's life-giving. Changes things. Mm-hmm. So all the omnis, and then let's bring in the, um, you know, what's what's the other one? This immutable, right? This, this sort of God that's... Can't, cannot be moved. And sure. so, so Vlad, I, I really I want to go to you mostly because these are these are like East, these are Eastern words. These are these are Greco-Roman words that were handed to us as a, as a church. Sure. I don't want to blame the. the and I know you can't. I know, I know you can't speak. I know you can't speak to the whole tradition. <laughs> I know you didn't write it. But I'm just curious because you had said earlier that your type of theodicy is the this Irenaeus position of character building, and he's he was a Greek church father. Okay, so first of all, as far as like orthodox, I, I, there's no way I'm taking on the responsibility for speaking <laughs> on. I know, like I don't know anything about it. I mean, as far as like what I've witnessed and what I've experienced, yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely the idea that suffering is somehow noble. Um, I mean, I I know more about the Eastern Orthodox Church from Dostoevsky and Tolstoy than I do from actually going to church. <laughs> So, um, but there is this there is this concept in, in Russian literature and Russian philosophy that suffering kind of ennobles the soul, um, and like I, I, the point that I was alluding to before, I mean this isn't Russian philosophy, but if God was to intervene in our lives, you know how how could we be, you know, truly generous or truly, you know, do do, do you know what I'm getting at, like? have these, like, full, like, emotional kind of responses if, if, it, if it doesn't come through, if it doesn't come in a world that has suffering. Like, it gives meaning to life. Yeah. And, you know, even, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of, I'm going to defend that in it to a degree and kind of move on that, where there is, there's a very, not just an Eastern Orthodox, but an, a Hindu and a Jewish perspective that says it's okay. There is good, there is evil, there is harm, there is well-being. There's all that. And God is a part of all that. God is sustaining all of that. So this process, open relational thought, ah, yeah, that's silly to an Eastern <laughs> way of thinking. You know, you live in the, you kind of live in the tension as a Jew, as a Hindu, and even as an Eastern Orthodox. I can't speak to the, any of those, but from what I've, I've studied. <laughs> yeah. I think in a in a post Holocaust world, the God God's still on trial. Um, God, if if you want to posit that God is all like powerful, all loving, all knowing, it's it seems like that God's a jerk whenever you bring in the context of our reality when we see suffering and we see like hunger and we see poverty. Um, it seems like to me God is still accountable for that, um, and so I think that's where to me like. The metaphysics comes in where it's you have to question the idea. Well, well, can God intervene in these situations? Can God know everything that is to know about reality? Um, is God all powerful? Um, and to me, I think at the end of the day, like it, it's it's hard for me to justify, regardless if you're trying to live in the tension of good and evil why God would create good and evil in the first place. Uh, why create that tension um, to exist in the first place. Um, and so for me, I think those questions still, don't, they, they don't go away. I mean, I, th- I think the concept of wrestling with good and evil, I, I think is, is a reality we tend to live in. So I think, I think it's a natural tendency to move to that spot that I still think that evil and sadness and um, despair in the world God is still accountable for those things. But they are oppositional, right? Good and evil... 
um, I don't know, high and low, right? I mean, like, if you're going to create anything, it has to have a dichotomy that's associated with it, right? Isn't that just platonic dualism, though? I mean, do we have to subscribe by that? I think that's that's the Greek Greco-Roman ideology that's mm -hmm. kind of... It is. ...been uh, melding into our, our theological frameworks. And so I think that that's a leftover from a a framework that may not necessarily fit with what we know in the 21st century. Well, give me an example. I, I could be wrong. I just... Well, so that you have to have war to have peace, or you have to have... I, I don't think that's true. I think you can live in peace without war. So I don't think you need the negative or the antithesis to have that piece. I don't think you need those two separate pieces. Well, for, there's no way to prove that. I mean, sure. the, the thing is, like, I, I, it's like some crazy statistics, and I'll, I'll look it up, like, next time. But in the whole time that we've had, like, civilization, right... There's been like nine years of peace when like the entire world was like not nobody was fighting anybody in like five six thousand years of like human civilization. I mean, I I, I, I could say you could safely say that that's the exception, you know. But is it a possibility? So well, you're you're saying because we the, haven't seen it yet that it may not be possible. I'm just I think it is possible, and that's me. My biases. My I think this is also ideas. like sort of a different. Question and conversation, simply because, like, just because things are typically in flux. I don't think saying that things are two, one of two ways, mm -hmm. and are typically both ends of the spectrum at one time. Oh, I think it's it's yeah. it's a it's a whole yeah. spectrum, right? It's sure. not it's not so black and white. Mm -hmm. And I think it's difficult to sit there and say, if we only had good, we wouldn't appreciate it, mm -hmm. right? Because that may be true, but it doesn't exist right now, and so it's very difficult to even have that that conversation, right? That's the way that I look at it, because if there was a God, and, and where I kind of stand, right, and I don't completely disagree with process theodicy, to me it has to be one of two things. It's either a weak God who does not intervene, or it is a God who is unfair and unjust, right? I don't think you can have it both ways. I don't think you can say this God intervenes in our everyday life for a reason, and he's also fair and just, even though there are tons of unreasonable things that happen, right, in mm -hmm. regards to suffering. So that's kind of where I'm at. The only problem that I have sort of with process, and maybe you guys could help me because I know you have both studied it completely, um, is that suffering exists for a reason at all, right? Like, this this idea that suffering exists because of our ability to choose, and while we've already had the conversation about free will, well, what if free will doesn't exist, right? And then, so does suffering, ex does suffering exist for a reason at all? Because that's kind of what process theodicy implies, right? So I would say, no, suffering doesn't exist for a reason. Um, that... And the, the reality is that, like, God is the most affected being in the world. That when a tree is cut down, God feels that. That when I'm insulted, God feels that. When I, when I say something that is incredibly sexist or homophobic, God feels that. Um, and that God is not re somehow removed from the world, but God is engaged with the world um, in a way that... Um, I, I like the way that Thomas Ord frames it when he says that... Um, the nature of God is love. Um, and, and what that means for Thomas Ward is like whenever he uses the analogy of, um, of a mermaid. And he says that the nature of a mermaid makes it such that a mermaid can't run a 5K, can't run a marathon because a mermaid doesn't have feet. Um, so if God is truly loving and relational, um, God can't, um, you know, God, God can't, be all-powerful or co coercive in the way that we typically think of it and is handed down from Greek philosophy. Um, and so I think that, to me, is really influential on how I'm looking at the situation in, in that light. And Andy, might, you might want to speak to that a little bit more. but Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I would say that the suffering in this world, I don't know if I'd say meaningless, because I think meaning can come out of suffering, but I think the act itself is a meaningless act. So I look at genocide, I think that's a meaningless act. I don't think that there's purpose behind that, but I think that a God who is in solidarity in the midst of that, who is calling us towards reconciliation, towards justice, towards those things, um, that is what I would say good news from a Christian perspective is in that. So it's but not. If, but if there's a God who is capable 
of creating mm-hmm. this insanely amazing world that we live in with so many complexities mm-hmm. and so many things that just blow my mind on a daily basis. If that God exists, why would he not intervene in the suffering? Is he incapable or yeah. does he yeah. choose not to? Why is that a lack of capability, but he is able to create the type of world that we exist in, right? That's that's kind of where I become so, confused. So Catherine Keller, who's a process theologian, um, she talks about um, creation of love, creatio ex amore. So usually there's this fight between creation of nothing or creation of something. Um, she's saying that the act of creation is a relational act. It's not, I'm some outside thing saying this is going to happen. It's I'm going to be in the midst of something and bring something forward. And so it's a God, a God that still is not a top-down coercive God. It's a God that works in the midst of creation to bring forth life and bring forth existence. And so that idea of a non-coercive, non-independent God fits within this idea of a God who, in our suffering, is, once again, is relational, is in the midst of that, but is not a top-down course of God saying this is going to happen or not going to happen. It's not in God's nature because so it's not I, relational. So I guess I would take it one step further and ask sort of what is the point of God in that society? Mm. Great question. Yeah, I, I, I love that question because to, to me, like, I ask this question on a daily yeah. basis. Um, and for me, the idea of God... Um, when, when you take away the concepts of omnipotence um, and all the omnis, and you take away this concept of a God who sits um, distant from creation, that has a hand in everything we do, it becomes really hard to be like, okay, well, what's the point in this? Um, and I think for me, as someone who identifies as a Christian and as someone who's heavily influenced by process thought and Wesleyan thought, um, to me, the idea of God existing amongst relationships the the idea that like when i encounter you as a human being um when i encounter the poor when i encounter creation there's something calling me um to respond um and i mean levinas talks about this as the call of the other like an, an ethical um kind of response to the the other uh, that when we look into the eyes of another person, we realize that our identity is inherently wrapped up in their identity and that there's something without ever speaking that is calling us to engage in relationship. Um, and, and what I want to say is, is whether you call that idea, um, the, the divine, whether you call it God, um, there's something there that is calling us to be something greater than what we currently were. There's something in each moment that calls us to become, um, based off our previous experiences, based off what we know, based off what our community knows, um, there's something in each moment that calls us to be um, and to live fully in, in the world. And I think for process theologians, that's what they call God. Um, and, I, and I think this is where process theology um, and process thought overlaps with the secular world. And, and, I mean, there's a lot of process thinkers that don't believe in God at all. Um, and so I think those concepts and those ideas definitely transcend um, religious traditions um, and things like that. But I think for the process theologian, for the process thinker, or for the Christian who's influenced by process thought, um, that, that's where God resides. God, God is in relationship. God is that which calls us in each moment to be greater than we were in the previous moment. Have you seen The Matrix? Bro? <laughs> <laughs> right? so, Old school. I just, I, no, I know. It's going somewhere. I, I, had some, I had some teenagers about a few years back when I had mentioned The Matrix, and they had no clue what I was talking about. And I go, Really? And I told them, oh, this is what year it came out. And they looked at me and they, they go, they said, they said, you're old. I'm like, and then I realized I am old. So go ahead, old man. Okay. I, I am old. But so I just I recently saw this video and it was really interesting. It's going back to this, I promise. But there's this video that's saying that the, actually the, the, the non-matrix world, the real world in the matrix is actually also part of the matrix. Right? Like, so if I was to, like, you've seen the movie, right? If I was to ask you, <laughs> so you have this choice, right? You can live in this, like, awesome, awesome world, right? Or like, say, like, the machines made a deal with you, like they did with that, that bald guy that crossed me out, right? They're like, we can, we can let you go back. You're a millionaire. Like, you're, everything is great, right? 
or like uh, like you can or if he didn't cross Neo, he would have stayed and continued fighting, right? He chose one choice. But for other characters in the movie, they couldn't make that choice because the struggle was more important than than living that kind of pristine life. So right? are you homeless? Do you choose to live on the streets? No. Do you choose to suffer more than you have to? No, 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 no. Oh, listen, okay. I, I, I actively avoid suffering. I'm, say, I'm, I'm trying to, exp- I'm trying to explain how suffering is like, can be seen in this world. It's not like I run towards it. Absolutely not. No. Right. Um, I'm just saying, as far as like from a theological perspective, like how, like, why does it exist? I can see why it exists. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. But yeah, no, from like a perspective of like, do I want this like actively? No, because I know what it is. Does anybody else struggle with a God who is capable and yet uh, doesn't? It'd be an arbitra- arbitrary God, and I couldn't worship an arbitrary God. A God who decides, yeah, I'm just going to do it on a whim here and help that person and help that person. Yeah. That I, I can't reconcile that with a God who is just, a God who is loving, a God who is that deeply relational being. Um, so I, I struggle with that deeply. Yeah. I, I think it would just destroy the concept of free will. I don't, like, I don't think there'd be like any. Well, I don't. Dude, so I don't know. I mean, <laughs> so then who is God? What is God? How is God? I mean, there, there's an element from you know the initial poem in Genesis that you know there's there's chaos over the deep, right? This whole thing, this, this water, which is. This concept of it's mass chaos and it's confusion and we don't even know what it is, and yet the spirit is hovering over it and then creates out of that, which is beautiful. That's helpful for me. But why, then the question, my, the devil's advocate in me goes, why was there ever chaos? Why was there ever the deep? What's the point of that? That was there before there was creation, according to this poem. Because maybe that's like the natural order of things. That... We need evil. We need chaos. Yeah. Why is chaos evil? Oh. Is your anarchist coming out there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I guess if you read that Genesis poem as this happened, as a literal event, then sure, you have to make sense of that. If you read this as myth, and not in a pejorative sense, but just myth as you know, story meant to convey meaning, um, it's irrelevant if you take that view of this actually happened or not, this story is saying out of chaos, God is calling forth something. And so I think whether it happened or not, um, the point is that out of a mess, out of non-structure, there is the ability for community. There is the ability for something to come out of that. Yeah. And I think we see the same thing within Rabbi Jesus, where he's always saying, let's go to the other side. And then he says, hey, get out of the boat. All these images of water, boat, other side... It's always the chaos. It's always the confusion. It's always, why are we going here? But then he's bringing beauty to, the, to that world, which would have been confusing to the people in the first century. So I have a question for the two of you. It's been a very, very long time since I picked up a Bible. So um, if this comes off this kind of ignorant, it, it might be. But when I was younger, I remember kind of reading the book of Job and the way that I interpreted that was that God had chosen him to suffer. Um, how is, like, what is your interpretation of that, and, like, what do you make of that story? Where's Bruce Epperly when you need him? Seriously, he wrote a really good book on this. <laughs> All right, Bruce. Bruce, if you're there, come on. <laughs> you want to uh, Yeah, you go for it. I mean, I can give my answer. I don't know if I can speak for Bruce Epperly or for process theology in general, um, so when I, so you're asking like scriptural backing or scriptural where that comes from or right, I'm I'm just saying that that is how I had I interpreted it, mm-hmm. and that is kind of what made the case for me of a God who chose mm-hmm. who would suffer and mm-hmm. who would not suffer, and it does have that power, not so much as just the translation of one term, right? Um, and I was just wondering how it was that you interpreted that so that you could kind of make sense of it in a process theology. The Odyssey type of way. So this will get really nerdy. Um, going back to both the, if you feel like genre criticism, so look at the different genres in scripture. Um, there is a 
pretty distinct um, difference in language between the first chapter and the last chapter and the rest of Job. And so a lot of scholars think that the story of Job is actually kind of a folktale, is something that was um, told that people would have known and that these other kind of bookends were added later. And also in that bookend where God kind of says, you know, were you there when earth was created? Were you there when all these things happened? Um, there is, I can't think of what the word is in Hebrew, but one of the words can be can be understood to mean God is saying, this is why I did it. And another interpretation would be that God um, doesn't have a good response for why that God did this. And so Job's response when, you know, you're God, you know these things, is almost like a sarcastic, well, you're God, you've got this figured out because God doesn't accept that response. And so there are a lot of different interpretations of that story, mm-hmm. and it just depends which you bring with you. Now, I'm not a Job scholar, and I don't have any, I read that five years ago, so it's been a while. Um, I can look it up and share it or show notes wherever you want, but just depending on how you read that story depends on how you understand God in that. And if you understand that as authoritative, this is God as in, you know, big G up in the sky deciding, or if you read this as a, once again, a myth meant to purvey a, a broader story. Yeah, and of course I was brought up in kind of a church family that believed in a God that intervened. Right. And so I think when I was taught that scripture, mm-hmm. I probably was taught it from a standpoint of... Literal story happened. And, yeah, and yeah. God is intervening mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, all the questions that we're asking to, would they wouldn't really have been asked when these things were probably written. Right. Right. Wasn't the point of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Any other last comments, thoughts, reflections on theodicy before we wrap it up? Nobody gets the last word, by the way. That isn't that one of our that's no, one of our tenants. guidelines. <laughs> no, but but yet somebody always technically does. <laughs> I, I don't feel particularly like strong on on this topic. No. I would say I think it's something that everyone should should deal with. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that this is something that is one of those things that shakes people's faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think overwhelmingly, like the tradition I grew up in, kind of hesitates to like encourage people to ask these questions. And I think these questions are incredibly important to wrestle with, um, not only for your own theological growth and understanding, but also how you engage with people. I mean, I think whenever, like, to bring this back around to a practical um, aspect of this, like, when we talked about this at the beginning, like, in a pastoral care situation or just a situation where a friend comes to you and says, hey, like, this is going on in my life, I think we have to have answers that respond in a loving way, and sometimes those answers are a lot harder to think about than we kind of might originally think so and i think you made a really good point there which is that um at least the church that i grew up in kind of encourages you not to say why me god right it's like taught just all the time don't question don't ask why me don't ask that right and that's why when someone can actually sit there and say well why me why am i going through this they can lose faith a lot of times, right? And I think that was a really, really strong point. And we live in a violent world. We live in a world where, sorry for my language, but shitty things happen to people and happen to good people all the time. Um, and people ask the questions. And if we don't have a response, like you were saying, that, that can cause lasting long-term damage. And I, I think we owe people better than that. So we would all agree, even if we disagree on our theology, that solidarity is pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hang with people when they're suffering. Love them well. Peace. <laughs>